My Bible is open to Romans chapter 7, so if you would turn there, that would be great. I talked to somebody in the 915 service who left in June on vacation when we were in Romans chapter 7, and hence, I was so surprised to come back and find you're still in Romans chapter 7. Yep, just, it's new hope, okay? Um, we are uh, working through the book of Romans. If you haven't uh, been to New Hope before, for, uh, first of all, follow that up with what Kyle said. Welcome. Glad that you're here. Um, we started in June of last year, and we've made it all the way to chapter 7, almost to the end of it. And so that means we probably have about another year and a half in Romans, okay? <laughs> Roughly, I'm just saying, just being honest with you. Because um, chapter 8's next. That's pretty great. Looking forward to that. But um, I, I just need to remind you of a few things that Paul has shown us so far in the book of Romans. And before we do that, I want to catch you up on a detail. Um, Some of you, most of you probably have received a letter um, indicating a specific detail about a change here at New Hope that's coming up in the month of September. And I want to amplify that for everybody who's here. Um, Coming up in the middle of September, we're going to be going to four services, okay? And if you hadn't heard that and that's new news to you, I'm going to explain to you the rationale why, because you might look around in the month of August and say, well, there's plenty of seats. Why would we do that? Especially if you came to the 915 service, you might look around and say, well, there's still more room for people. However, if you think back to May and April and March, you might remember just how jammed it was here. And we know that it's Michigan, it's summertime, people go away on vacations, but we know what's coming in the middle of September. And our, part of our goal in building the new building that we're building on Saginaw Road, when we have the resources complete to be able to do that, is to bring in people who don't yet know Christ and bring people into New Hope who are not yet here. And so we need to make space for them. So allowing for a fourth service is going to do that, especially in the 11 o'clock hour, this is going to impact you if this is your normal service. So Saturday night is going to stay the same. It still will be at 6 o'clock. But on Sunday morning, there will be an 8.15 service instead of a 9.15. So you want to note that if you typically go to the Saturday mor- or the, the 9.15 service on Sunday morning. So there'll be 8.15, 9.45, and 11.30, okay? So the college students are gonna love the 11.30 service, right? And I'm just saying the, the 10 o'clock service, the 9.45 one, that's gonna be absolutely jammed. So if you have flexibility in your schedule, it would be great if you could come to the 8.15 service if you're an early riser. So here's a thought. How about attend the 8.15 service and serve in the 9.45? That'd be good, right? Or maybe attend the 8.15 and serve in the 11.30 service. One of those are great options for you. There's ways to serve here at New Hope, and you can talk with the staff to find out more about that. But the reality is, on the middle of September, we're going to four services. It will really, really help. Staff are very, very aware of what's going on in the parking lot, especially in the 11 o'clock hour, so we're going to adapt accordingly. However, when we move to the new building, there will not be four services. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> so um, my voice will usually be recovered by Tuesday, I'm thinking. Okay, let me take you into Romans, and um, I want to just big picture stuff. What is Romans all about? What's Paul doing with this book? He's helping us understand justification. And if you're new to church, you might never have heard that word before. Maybe you've heard the word justify or justified, but you're not really necessarily thinking justification, so what is that? Well, I don't typically start out a service by putting Greek words on the screen, but I'm going to make an exception today. 
because I want you to see the Greek word that's in your notes. It's also appearing on the screen for this word, justification. And why is it such a big churchy word? What does it mean? Well, if you're familiar with the term to be acquitted, to be acquitted of charges, it really applies in this moment. So Scripture is telling you that if you're in Jesus, you've been acquitted. You have been rendered innocent, even though you're guilty. How does that work? Even though you're guilty and you've got sin, Jesus has acquitted you, has justified you. Therefore, justification declares you are righteous. Only, hear this, only Jesus Christ can do that for you. Amen? Only Jesus. He's the only one that can do that. And when he justifies, it does things. It does things eternally. Let me show you four of the things that Paul has pointed out to us so far in Romans. You see them on the screen, they're in your notes as well. First of all, justification produces security. In chapter 5, we really saw that amplified for us. And justification produces holiness. Not just holiness before God, that God sees us as holy, but holier in our actions here on this planet. And justification also produces freedom, specifically from the bondage to the law. And we talked about that a lot in in the month of July. And here's the fourth thing that you're going to see come out this morning. Justification in you, it, it produces a hatred of sin. You'll especially see that in Paul's own personal example this morning. So let me pray with you right now before we step into what Paul wants us to see, that our eyes would really be open. Join me in prayer, please. Father, I pray for everybody who's in the auditorium, those who are watching online right now, that you would unify our hearts specifically in such a way that we are totally responsive to the Holy Spirit. You've given us as believers the presence of the Holy Spirit to guide us. And for those who are not yet believers, you've given the Holy Spirit to reveal things. So God, I ask that in both cases, you would teach us, show us, help us to understand, do what only you can do. You said that your word is alive and that it's active and that it's sharp. We ask that you would use it as a tool to even discern our very thoughts. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've gained some really big insights coming out of chapter 7. Here's a big one. The law, it has a specific action to it. The law proves that there is a path to salvation. The law shows the way to salvation, but the law is not salvation. Keeping the law doesn't make you saved. So this is what we said in the last couple weeks. The law is preparation for the way of salvation, but it is not salvation. Amen? Are you good with that? It is not salvation. That's why Scripture says this in Romans 3.20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God needed to state that really, really clearly for me. He needed to state that clearly for Mark Craig, and he needed to state that clearly for you. Here's why. Because our human nature thinks that we can earn our way to God, that we can do just enough good things. If we just keep the Ten Commandments, if we just give away enough money, maybe then God will tip the scales in my favor and let me in one day. That's not what Scripture says. You see it very, very clearly in Romans 3.20. 
You can't get there by the law. The law doesn't justify you. There's that big word, justification. God needed to state that really, really clearly. So naturally, humans would say, why then? Why would God give a law that is especially so impossible to keep? Well, the law was given to reveal God's standard of righteousness, to show us what it looks like. But we discovered in chapter 7, because of our fallen nature, because we're rebels at the core, remember that? Because we're rebels, we push back against God's standard. So Paul does a really gracious thing. He uses himself as an example of what it means to push back against God. Here's an example for you from verse 8. Look with me at verse 8 on the screen. But sin, taking opportunity through commandment, through the commandment, produced in me coveting. Paul's out in himself. He says, I'm a coveter. I'm, I'm coveting of every kind. And he said, sin is using God's commandment as a launching point right into my human nature. So chapter 7 not only has revealed our human nature to us, but within it we find Paul telling his own story. I told you a few weeks ago, he sees himself as being spiritually naked and realizes just how far short of the glory of God he really is, just how far short of God's standard. He realizes his religious activity, like going to church, or hanging out with church people, he realizes all of that that he did in his past, that he thought made him acceptable to God, that stuff's just rubbish in comparison to his need as a person who falls short of the glory of God. So you find him in Philippians 3, 7 saying, all my righteousness, it's like to be thrown out on the landfill. It has no value. The level of spiritual maturity represented in that statement, the type of insight that's characterized within that, that is the sign of a spiritually mature believer. Paul's not immature in the faith. He's mature in the faith, and he has no trust in his own achievements. It's very clear from the use of the first person singular in chapter 7, 46 times. First person singular. Clearly, Paul's referring to himself, and the more clearly he sees God's holiness, the more he grieves over his own sinfulness. This has made me think of Isaiah chapter 6. I bet some of you are thinking of it right now. Old Testament, Isaiah says he's caught up into the presence of God. God has him standing in the throne room before the very throne of God. And what does Isaiah say? He says, I see God, and I hear angels saying, holy, 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 it's the Lord God Almighty. And I see God on his throne, and the train of his robe, it fills the entire temple, and the foundations, the threshold of the temple shake when the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy. What is Isaiah's next response? And God talked to me, and I said, whoa, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king of glory. That's Paul. Paul's saying, I see the holiness of God. I understand his majesty, and when we understand the majesty and the holiness of God's perfect law, 
our self-inflated pride is absolutely shattered. That, that's verse 8. Now, let me catch you up on verse 13. Verse 13 sets us up for where we're going with 14. He said in verse 13, part B, through the commandment, the sin would become utterly sinful, meaning under the pure, white, intensely hot light of God's righteous law, sin is exposed and its wretchedness is revealed. The law reveals in order that sin might be shown to be sin. Here's why. God has to do that because until humanity sees sin for what it really, really is, we're not going to see the need for salvation. So God's got to expose it. God's got to expose it. So he raises the standard and said, this is what it looks like. If you fall short of that, you fall short of my glory. So we understand until humanity understands how far they fall short of the glory of God, we're not going to see the need of salvation. So that means the big picture of Romans, the, the real purpose of the law it's to drive us to Jesus because he alone can deal with the reality that we fall short of the glory of God. Amen, church? Only Jesus can do that. Now, I know what you're thinking because you're church people. You, you showed up at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning when the rest of the world is out playing golf or kayaking or hanging out in a pool someplace. You're thinking right now, I get that, Mark. I know this stuff. For crying out loud, you've taken us through Romans for 42 weeks. We know this. Here's the danger. The danger is that you could stop short. You can't stop there. If you're a Christ follower, if you belong to Jesus, and you say, I believe in him, I believe that he died for my sins. I believe that he rose again the third day and that he ascended to the Father. If you are a believer in Jesus, you still need exposure to God's righteous standard. You still need to clearly see sin for what it is so you can see it in your own life and deal with it. And you're going to watch Paul do exactly that. Go with me to verse 14. Verse 14, for, or the conjunction he uses, because, for or because we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. He's given a defense of what he just said here. He's affirming the law is good. It's not bad. It's not the problem because it's spiritual. But verse 14, I'm flesh. Man, I'm flesh and blood. I'm still mortal. I'm still on this planet. I'm still earthbound. Do you notice he's not saying he's still in the flesh? He's saying he's of the flesh, and there is a difference. Because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're no longer in the flesh. You're no longer enslaved to sin. That's what chapter 6 was all about. You're no longer enslaved to it. It's not your master. So the big idea here is this. Although we've been redeemed for eternity, we continue to live with the reality of our fleshness. Don't look up that word because you aren't going to find it. It's a, we'll call it a cringism, okay? Fleshness. It's a reality. We live with the presence of sin every day. Not just as though it's out there, but it's here. It's in our fleshness. It's the reality of this fallen world that we live in. So check this. Even the apostle, even the guy who wrote books of the Bible, Paul, owns it. He owns the reality. The guy has his face painted 
all over sanctuaries in Europe and in the United States. Icons have been made of him. He sits upon pedestals. People have named buildings after him. And this guy is so honest, he owns it. He owns the reality of what we face, even though we're saved, eternally saved from sin, eternally saved from its condemnation power. Say amen if you believe that. Only because of Jesus, completely and forever cleansed, yet still groaning every day for our final release from this insufferable battle that we find ourselves caught up in. Let me back that up with Scripture. It's going to take us a few weeks to get to Romans 8. We're going to get there. And, and by the time we get to verse 23, another couple months might have gone by, but let me put 23 on the screen for you. Watch what it says about this release. We ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. He's talking about his physical flesh body. At the death of a person on planet earth, if they're a believer in Jesus Christ, translated into the presence of God, the redemption of our body, that's when this stuff stops. And so Paul says, until then, we groan and we're waiting eagerly. See, every honest Christian is aware we all far, fall far short of God's standard. And we find ourselves constantly sliding back, sliding back into sinful behavior. If we're really honest with people who are not believers in Jesus... I think they'd look differently at us if they understood just how real this issue is, that sin is still deceitful, and it is still powerful, and it still draws us. Nevertheless, a true Christian is never happy with sin, right? Because of our new nature within us. We're not happy with it. So we have to be honest. I don't want to be there. In the 1970s when I was a kid and, and uh, then into the 80s when I made it into Bible college, I used to hear this phrase, a very churchy phrase, people would say uh, about a person who's um, seemingly wandered away from Christ, they, they would say, they're, they're a backslidden Christian, right? Remember hearing that phrase, if you're old enough, they're backslidden. I'm here to tell you, we're all backsliders, right? We do. We just don't want people to know it. We don't ever want to out ourselves because our minds go places they shouldn't go. Our eyes look at things we shouldn't look at. We find our tongue saying things we wish we would have never said. A true Christian is never happy with that condition, but they know it's a reality. So watch Paul, how he expresses this about himself in verse 15. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. See, sin is so powerful that even a redeemed person finds it still clings. The picture that pops in my mind is like those dryer sheets, you know? You open up the dryer, you pull out your clothes, and there's this sheet you put in there. You've got to peel it away. And like static electricity, it wants to go right back there again. Or try and pull apart a couple socks out of the dryer. Static electricity, boom, right back together again. Sin is like that. It still clings to us. And here's what it does. It frustrates our desires to obey the very will of God. You want proof that sin still has power? 
Look at the reality of what Paul's saying in verse 15. I am not practicing what I would like to do. So really understand what he's saying when he uses the word understand. It's your last Greek word for this morning. I want you to see it on the screen. He uses this word understand, and you think you know what he's saying because you're thinking through a Western mind. You're thinking through an English mindset. But he's, he's writing this from the Greek framework This word genosko means way more than just taking in information and saying, I don't get it. It's not like a mathematical problem that doesn't make sense to him. This word genosko actually means to be more than just taking in information. You're so aware, you're so informed that you have knowledge and you perceive something to the depth that the Bible uses it to describe the relationship between a husband and a wife. There's things I know about Lori that you will never know. There's things that Lori knows about me you will never know. Why? Because of the intimacy of the relationship of a husband and wife. You're in relationship with someone, someone who knows you very, very well. This word genosko applies. It's also used in Scripture in relation to our relationship with God the Father because God knows us so well. Let me show you the example from Galatians 4.9. Now that you have come to genosko, God, meaning intimate relationship, or rather to be genosko by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things? See, it starts to make sense when you understand the way Paul's using this phrase. I... I don't know these things. They're no longer part of me. I don't understand. I'm not in relationship with that sin. So why is that there? See, it's not that Paul is unable to do good things. He is able to do good things. But when the fullness of God's law comes into view, he is not able to measure up. And he sees clearly how far short of the glory of God, he is. See, he's given voice to what you deal with every single day. The chaos you feel, the turmoil inside. Why did I think that? Why did I say that? Why did I go to that place? Why did I do that? Paul's expressing that very same turmoil right here that we all deal with. We're unable to live up to our own heart's desire. So Paul painfully confesses here, I'm not practicing what I would like to. Now watch his reasoning in verse 16. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Verse 17, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. See, he's going after the source, right? He's going after the source of the failure. Why the inability? And he begins by defending God's law, by saying, it's not the law's fault, What God gave is not bad. The law is good. I agree with the law. So what's the source then, Paul? Why the failure? Paul says, it's no longer me. It's no longer I, but the sin which dwells within me. What's going on here? He is not trying to escape responsibility. He's not trying to take himself personally out of the mix for his failure. In verse 17, Paul gets really precise in his terms. There's been a radical change in him. If you have your own Bible open right now, you might want to circle the phrase, no longer. Because no longer means very specifically a negative adverb. 
Paul's used this for a purpose here. He's saying there's been a permanent change in me. No longer am I the one doing it. Why? Because there's been a permanent change. I'm going to use this negative adverb here because I'm not who I used to be. My new inner self, it doesn't approve of the sin that's clinging to me. What's the reason for the change? Well, if you're new to church, especially paid attention to this, you, you want to see this, Galatians 2.20. Here's the reason for the change. I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So check this. And the life that I live, that I now live in the flesh, I have to live that life by faith in the Son of God who loves me and he delivered himself up for me. That's why Paul writes the way that he does. John MacArthur is a theologian I really respect and um, he still teaches in California. He had a great insight on this particular passage. Let me show you his quote on the screen. It's in your notes also if you want to keep it for yourself later. In this life... Christians are somewhat like an unskilled artist who beholds a beautiful scene that he wants to paint, but his lack of talent prevents him from doing the scene justice. The fault is not in the scene or in the canvas, the brushes or the paint, but in the painter. That is why we need to ask the master painter, Jesus, to place his hand over ours in order to paint the strokes that, independent of him, we could never produce. That's excellent. Because that's a match for John 15, 5. What did Jesus say in John 15, 5? He said, apart from me, you can't do anything. Apart from the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, apart from my power flowing through you, you trying to defeat that fortress in your life? You trying to do that on your own? Apart from me, you, you got no chance. He didn't say, apart from me, you can do some things. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. It takes God's work in our life to beat those fortresses. So Jesus says it very clearly. Apart from me, you just can't do it. So I'm just going to let Paul talk now. In verses 18, he just begins with a dissertation about what's really going on in the human spirit. Verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Can you identify with Paul this morning? Is it making sense to you? Do you wonder why? You constantly find yourself tripping over certain things in your life. I think this is the reason many people wonder whether or not they're actually saved. I think this is the reason you're reading in Scripture many people question their salvation because they can remember, they can remember when they confess Jesus as their Savior. But they wonder, why am I constantly finding myself falling backwards? Why can't I get victory over this? Because they're not dealing with the reality of their fleshness, and it takes the power of God working through them. Can you identify with Paul? He's got this deep desire to do only good. He wants to carry out God's will. After all, Paul, you're redeemed. You're a new creation. What is it with you? Why are you stumbling? 
Paul says there's a reality going on. The good that I want to do, I do not do. I practice the very evil that I don't want to do. I want you to notice, just as a for free, you're seeing one of the great evidences of the authenticity of God's word, the Bible that you hold in your hands. You won't find it in any other literary piece of work on planet Earth where the individuals whom we have put on the sides of church buildings and named buildings after and built pedestals on and have called icons where they out themselves and say, don't make me an icon. Give the glory to Jesus. He's the one that redeemed me. It's one of the authentic, authentic, authentic <laughs> it's one of the proofs of Scripture, okay? <laughs> They're just genuine. They're telling it like it is, and it's honest, and it's unvarnished. Again, just like in verse 15, he's not saying he's incapable of doing anything good. You guys do good things. He's just saying, I'm, I'm incapable of fulfilling the requirements of God's holy law. So that's why he writes Philippians 3, 14, I press on. Man, I press on. And I push, and I push, and I press. Why? I press on that I may lay hold. You see in that passage as you're looking at it, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it. You're not talking about salvation, I haven't laid hold of it yet. I'm not where I want to be. But one thing I do, I forget what's behind. Have you left your past in your past? Are you pressing on towards the high calling? Press on towards the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? Paul says this is true of him. I recognize these things are real, but I press on. So the opposite side of that issue is verse 19 Chapter 7, I practice the very evil I do not wish. See, there's simple logic going on here. When you come into verse 20, he says, if then I'm doing these things that I don't wish, it must be I'm no longer the one doing it. He's not avoiding responsibility. He's recognizing there's some fleshness going on. So verse 21, I find then the principle that evil is present in me. Paul just names himself the one who wants to do good. It's me. I'm the one who wants to do good. The presence of evil is so universal. Do you notice? He's referring to it as a common reality. He says, this is an operating principle in humanity. Here's how this relates to you. The presence of that operating reality in your life, it goes to war every day against every good thought you have, every good action, every good intent of the heart, every word. Everything that you try to do that's good, this evil present, this fleshness, wars against us. And if you notice, I didn't say every good word when I said word, because a lot of the words that come out of our mouth are not good, right? There's things that we wish we could get a hold of, and one of them is the tongue, I think this is frankly one of the things that Paul struggled with. I'll check with him one day when I get to heaven. But when he talks about this issue, this guy is brilliant. He has a sharp mind and he can lace people. You see evidence of it within his argument with Barnabas. I think he said things he wished he wouldn't have said. I'll check with him about that one day. Maybe you'll get there first and you can check with him. I think this is an issue for him. 
And he recognizes, I don't want to do these things. I haven't gotten control of this yet. There's an individual who's a theologian that just died two years ago, C.B. Cranfield, highly regarded individual living in Europe, lecturing over there, a professor. And his insight on this passage as it relates to you and I is this. Even our very best acts and activities are disfigured by the egotism which is still powerful within. Chew on this last part this week. And no less evil because it is often more subtly disguised than formerly. (laughs) Meaning we're just really good at hiding it, right? Because we know how to turn things for our favor. Here's a slight shift going into this last passage here, verse 22. What do you do now? How do you respond to this reality? Well, watch Paul's response. Verse 22. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, verse 23, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Paul's got some proof, and I'm going to challenge you right now to look and see if these proofs are true in your own life. He's got some proof that sin is no longer his master. He's got some proof that he is redeemed and that he's justified because he's able to say, I joyfully concur with God. I don't stand opposed to God. I agree with him. I agree with God. God is right. Can you say that this morning? God is right. I agree with him. So our position of justification, because we're justified, it puts us in a place where our inner person, our core is redeemed And we're at the point where we can say, I'm on God's side on this. God is absolutely right. So start there. Accept that the battle with sin is real. And it is a powerful enemy. And it's working to derail you. Some of you, even right now, as you're sitting in this auditorium. Things that are going through your mind you don't want to be thinking about, but you are. But that issue can no longer destroy you. It can no longer condemn you. It is no longer your master if you're a believer in Jesus. Amen? Can't, but it works against you. And it's fighting with you right now. So you start there and accept that the battle is real. The reality is it's still there, but you can advance against it. And you can have victory. You're not destined to live in defeat all your days on earth. So there's some keys to this, and it begins with talking to God about the issue. Not trying to do it in your own strength, but doing it in his strength. So start with prayer. Some of you may even need to do that right now. You may just need to say, God, I I need your power right now. I need it. Look with me at the verse on the screen. It says specifically in Ephesians 3.16, pray that you would be strengthened with power through his spirit, right? Not your spirit, his spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. Where? Right in your core. I want to be strengthened, God. Start praying that way before you go to the place you shouldn't go to. Start praying that way before you enter into the conversation you should not enter into. Before you allow your eyes to go onto the computer screen and look at things you should not look at. Start praying now that God would give you strength in your inner man. Paul says, this is proof. I can see it. I agree with God. Here's another evidence of the proof of the presence of the Holy Spirit in him. 
He says in verse 23, I see a different law, though. I see a different law in the members of my body, meaning this, and I know it's really subtle, but it's very obvious. He's aware. He's aware that this war is real. What's he aware of? It's painfully obvious to him that he's aware that the law of God's standard is something that he's not measuring up to. He's falling short. Something different is operating within him. A different law operating within the members of his body, meaning he's completely like you this morning. He's completely dialed into the fact that there is this turmoil issue. I don't want to be this way, and this opposition is continually waging war against my mind. Here's the fact. The residue of our old life, that sin nature still clings, even though Jesus died for our sins and has redeemed us for eternity, we face this battle because we're still flesh. We're still on this planet. How long does it remain, Mark? Am I ever going to get over this? Are you going to gain victory? Yes. But is it ever going to be completely gone? Not until you receive your glorified body. Because you're still flesh and blood. So watch how Scripture articulates this. Back to Romans again, Romans 8, 22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. If you've never been in a delivery room, you don't know what's being described there. You've been in a delivery room and watched a woman give birth to a child, you know what he's writing about. There's screaming pain going on. This is anguish. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, meaning we've got the Holy Spirit within us, having the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. See, the reason I say those are proofs is because only a redeemed person with the presence of the Holy Spirit is aware of these things. Jesus says the unredeemed don't even set their mind on the things above. So if you're wrestling with this and this conviction overcomes you, that's the presence of the Holy Spirit. You can measure the presence of the Holy Spirit within you. So Paul's really measuring it when you go into these last two verses, verse 24. I'm just going to put part of it up there. Watch the anguish from Paul. Wretched man that I am. When's the last time you ever told somebody you were wretched, right? You just, you're not going to do it. But this is the guy whom we've made icons out of. He wrote the book of Romans. He says, wretched man that I really am. Wretched man. He's exploding with emotion because the conflict is real and it's intense and it's agonizingly internal. And if you think today as you sit there this morning that you are exempt from this, I take issue with you. Because I contend that Paul is describing the most mature of Christians. The more honestly that we measure ourselves against God's standard of righteousness, the more we realize how much we fall short. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Question. Asked this a month ago, I'll ask it again. Are you more aware of your need for Jesus today than you were a month ago? Maybe some of you are more aware at 12.01 right now than you were at 11.01. 
Are you more aware than what you were a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago? Congratulations, you're growing in Christ. God's evidencing himself. You need him. You know that you need him. That's why I say he's describing the most mature of Christians because the closer we get to God, the more we see our own sin. An immature person tends to live under a false reality, this illusion that they somehow measure up to God's standard. A new creation in Jesus lives with a real tension. We are in Christ Jesus. Because you're in Christ Jesus, you do possess the nature of God within you. And that indwelling of the Holy Spirit produces within you a conviction. If you didn't have a sense of conviction over sin, I would really begin to question whether or not you have a relationship. So we find that Paul says he loathes this issue. He loathes to be rid of its presence. There's a a Puritan writer who lived in the 1600s. His name is Thomas Watson. You want to see some great quotes? Google up Thomas Watson later. Look at some of his quotes. But he said this about Romans 7. He said specifically in 1680, a hypocrite may leave sin yet love it. As a serpent casts its coat but keeps its sting... But a sanctified person can say he not only leaves sin, but loathes it. So Paul says in verse 24, wretched man that I am. He asks a great question. Who will set me free from this body of death? Don't you love the answer that's coming? Who will set me free? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank God there's Jesus. Amen? Oh, say it like you believe it. Come on, you guys. Thank God there's Jesus. Wretched people that we are. We just own it. We accept it. Be that real with your friends who don't know Jesus yet. People may look at you and say, well, I'm not interested in being a Christ follower. You're not that much better than me. You could say, isn't that great? Because I've got grace on me, let me show you the reality of what Romans 7 is saying about who we really are and what Jesus has done for us. Thank God there is deliverance through Jesus. Because through Jesus, God provided a way to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you can say, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. The deliverance we have is wonderful. Absolutely. Yet, it is just a first installment of greater things to come. Like the release from this planet when you won't know sin anymore. I want to be really clear about this as I send you out the door. It is not as though Paul's salvation is somehow flawed. Like he didn't do enough good things. He didn't do something right. It shouldn't be that way. It's not as though your salvation is imperfect. From the moment you receive Jesus as your Savior, you are completely acceptable to God, destined for eternity. But do not stop there. Don't stop short. Don't leave here today armed with this thought with, with only this information that, well, Mark said that sin's a reality and it's powerful and it's got this strength over me, it is harmful to stop short. Don't leave here feeling weak or defeated, willing to surrender to sin and its activity in your life. 
That would be absolutely pitiful and an insult to God. Here's what you do. Take your sensitivity to sin, and this is what we're really describing. You are sensitive to sin in ways that you didn't used to be. Take your sensitivity to sin and rise up like a lion and fight against it on all fronts, doing battle with it, but not on your own. Through the power of the God who works and lives within you, there's reasons you're sensitive to sin. Let me show them to you really quickly, and then you're going to go. A believer is sensitive to sin, specifically here. And we could stop just with this one because it dishonors God. Let's go on, though. It grieves the Holy Spirit. Here's a third one. It keeps your prayers from being answered. Did you know that? That's what Peter wrote about. You, You can hinder your own prayer life by your sinful activity. Here's a fourth one. It robs your spiritual life of its power. The power that God intended for you to have. Here's the truth. Satan wants you to quit. Satan wants you to feel defeated. But God says, remember who you are, new hope. Remember you are the redeemed of the Lord. Rise up like lions. God is alive within you. Remember who you belong to. So I send you out the door with 2 Corinthians 10. Write this down in your notes or in your Bible. You're going to want this verse. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for what? For the destruction of fortresses. You got some fortresses in your life? Only you know them. You can identify them. God says, through my power, you can destroy them. So Mark, how does this all relate to the law? Because that's what we started talking about. As long as you remain on planet Earth, the law is your spiritual ally. It is. It's there as your friend to reveal. Christians still need exposure to God's righteous standard. Why? so that we can see sin in our life and confess it and deal with it so that God can use us in a powerful way in the lives of other people. That's exactly what you saw Paul do today. Let me pray with you that you would remember this as you go out the door today. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the truth of what's been amplified in ways that we could never do in our own strength but because of the power of the Holy Spirit teaching us, we can see more clearly now. And if if that has happened, it's because you were gracious to us and allowed us understanding. I pray that as we go out the door that we do not forget. I, I pray for that in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, asking that you will allow us to remember that this is a real war and we have to do battle with your strength against it, not in our own strength. God, I ask that you would allow us to be honest and genuine with people who ask us about our walk. That we could be as unvarnished as Paul is. That we would also, Father, know the power of the Holy Spirit within us to rise up as lions and be willing to do battle against the sin in our life. These things, Father, we pray for in the matchless name of our Jesus, Savior, King, And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.